As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tensions between China and the West are at an all-time high. Well, politically at least. But thanks to Louis Vuitton trunks, Birkin bags and semiconductors, the business relationship between both poles paints a starkly different picture. And the modern game of football is really quite a lot about the game of financing. But in Italy's top league, a not very rich team looks set to take the league title this weekend. We ask how it got there on the cheap and what that says about the sport. First up, though. Recently, I traveled to La Paz, the administrative capital of Bolivia. Anna Lankes writes about Latin America for The Economist. I was there to speak with money changers, the people who buy and sell currencies, mostly the Bolivian currency, the Boliviano, and the U.S. dollar. And their job has become quite a bit more difficult because Bolivia is running out of dollars. One money changer told me he couldn't get his hands on enough dollars to sell to customers. And people who are willing to sell him dollars are demanding a higher rate than the official exchange rate. There has been a peg of six bolivianos and 96 cents to the dollar for more than a decade. But the sudden demand for dollars signals a deeper problem in the country. In February, the central bank stopped publishing data on its foreign currency reserves. And in March, the bank started selling dollars directly to the public after exchange houses said that they were running out. That spooked investors. So government bonds maturing in 2028 by early April had lost almost half their value since January, though in the past week they've regained some value. But overall, the picture is still pretty grim. So Anna, tell us, why is Bolivia's economy so troubled? There's a couple of reasons. So when the Federal Reserve, which is America's central bank, started raising interest rates last year, it became harder for countries like Bolivia to take on foreign debt. The war in Ukraine has made imports of fuel much more expensive. So the government started dipping into its reserves to prop up both the currency, which, as I've mentioned, has been pegged for around a decade, and to subsidize fuel. But it's a longer-term issue. Bolivia has an economic model that is no longer sustainable. And why is that? Tell us more about this economic model. So for two decades, Bolivia's economic model has been based on natural gas exports. There was a gas boom from the early 2000s, and Bolivia started exporting loads of natural gas, and the economy grew a lot. There was a leftist president called Evo Morales, who was elected in 2005, 
And he got very lucky. When he came to power, multilateral institutions wrote off huge debts for Bolivia and other poor countries, and gas prices hit record highs. Both of these things allowed Bolivia to accumulate the largest foreign reserves in its history. And real GDP per person has grown by half since 2005. So in 2011, they pegged the Boliviano to the dollar because the government had reserves to back that peg up. For a while, things looked good in Bolivia. Still today, it has among the lowest inflation, not just in the region, but in the world. And people said that Bolivia was going through an economic miracle. But in reality, the model wasn't sustainable. Why not? Why did it all come crashing down? It hasn't quite crashed yet, but the model is clearly not sustainable. The government spent too much of the cash from natural gas on fuel subsidies, inefficient state firms, and on propping up the exchange rate. So fuel prices have been frozen since 2005. A liter of fuel costs around 54 cents, US dollar cents, compared to around $1.31 in the rest of the world. Then in 2006, the president, Evo Morales, nationalized the country's gas fields. And so private companies had to sign new contracts with the state firm and hand over majority control. That means that Bolivia takes a bigger share of revenue from oil and gas companies than any other country in Latin America except Mexico. That has really put off investment. And the tipping point came in 2014. What happened in 2014? Well, Bolivia's finances started to deteriorate mainly because there was a big fall in gas production. But the government didn't scale back its policies. Instead, it piled on debts and used its reserves as well to fund things like its subsidies or to pay for its peg. So public debt has doubled since 2014. It's now around 80% of GDP, which is very high for a lower middle-income country. Now it's been almost 10 years since then, and Bolivia has been running persistent and large deficits for most of that time. So in the past year, actually, Bolivia became a net importer of hydrocarbons when usually it exported loads of hydrocarbons. And you went to Bolivia. How are the people there responding to this? Many people are pulling their savings out of banks and buying dollars. But because dollars have become more scarce, many people have started buying euros or Chilean pesos or the Brazilian real or Peruvian soles. So I spoke to a money changer who told me exactly this, that people are desperate to get their hands on anything that's not the boliviano. I talked to several people who told me that in recent weeks, different banks have been setting limits on how many dollars customers can take out. So... For example, you might not be able to take out more than $500 a day or $1,000 a week, depending on your bank. And that has really frightened people. But the government has been very slow to acknowledge that there's a problem. The current president, Luis Arce, said there's no need to devalue the Boliviano or remove subsidies. His growth projections are twice as high as those of the IMF for this year. And do you think there's any hope for a change in Bolivia's fortunes? Well, there is some short-term good news. There's a law that looks likely to be approved in Bolivia's Congress that would allow the central bank to sell up to half of its gold reserves. Also, the Bolivian government is in advanced talks to get loans from several international financial institutions. 
Both moves will allow the government to get more foreign currency, and that has reassured investors somewhat. So recently, Bolivian bonds have rebounded a little bit. And that sounds like it could finally end the crisis. Only in the short term, I think, because long term, Bolivia's economic model was based on natural gas. And because production has fallen, that's going to be a real problem for the economy and for the government. However, there are other kind of cushions against, you know, a complete meltdown. One of those is that Bolivia has a giant informal economy. Over two thirds of Bolivians work in the informal sector, which is one of the highest shares in the world. And this includes, you know, smuggling subsidized Bolivian fuel and selling it abroad at much higher prices. So there are dollars circulating in the Bolivian economy. They're just not necessarily in government coffers. The final long-term hope for the government is lithium, which is used for things like batteries and smartphones and electric vehicles. Bolivia has the world's largest lithium brine resources, but it hasn't yet been able to sell any lithium at a commercial scale. And Bolivia's populist policies have turned off much-needed investment. So there are these kinds of flashes of hope, and Bolivia might have a savior in lithium, but it has very serious structural issues that it has built up over the last 20 years, and those aren't going away anytime soon. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ore. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Earlier this month, France's president, Emmanuel Macron, made what many, including The Economist, considered a diplomatic blunder. He suggested that France and Europe shouldn't get involved in any conflict between China and America over Taiwan. Mr. Macron made the comment during a visit to see his counterpart in China, Xi Jinping. It was a trip on which he was joined by more than 50 French business executives. From an economic stance at least, France has good reason to try and maintain a healthy relationship with China, regardless of its allies' security concerns. So France's stock market is extremely exposed to Chinese demand. Mike Bird is our Asia business and finance editor and co-hosts our sister podcast, Money Talks. The week after President Macron's visit to China, France's stock market hit a record high. It's hit record highs again since then. And strong Chinese demand is the most obvious cause of this. France has a huge number of very, very valuable luxury goods companies. And the end of zero COVID in China has been great for them. It not only means more people in China able to go out and buy their products, but it means people are able to leave China, travel to France and other parts of Europe and buy the products that these luxury goods companies sell. And they're a huge part of the market. And how huge? How important is the luxury sector to France's economy? 
Well, to give you one statistic, LVMH, that's the luxury company behind Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, is France's largest listed company by quite some distance. Its CEO is the richest man in the world. It's done incredibly well so far this year. It reported a 17% jump in year-on-year sales in the first quarter. But it's not alone. You've got Hermes International, Kering, uh, Pernod Ricard, other luxury brands uh, that make up another sort of 8 to 10% of the French stock market. So when you look at it like that, this is a really, really big proportion of the French equity market. And Mike, tell us, is France alone in relying so heavily on Chinese demand? Well, France, I think, is a particularly good example. But no, it's not really alone at all. If you look at valuations in rich world stock markets, you would basically not know that China and the West had any sort of relationship strains at all. It's very, very difficult to actually find something in financial markets that tells us this. So if you look at the companies in the West with particularly high Chinese revenues, particularly high share of their sales happening in China, or from Chinese consumers in general, those stocks are up about 7% this year. That's considerably better than a lot of financial markets are doing. Basically, you would not know from any of this that there was a problem, any sort of difficulties between the West and China. You would certainly not know that relations are at a sort of 50-year low, especially between the US and China. Okay, so it sounds like this is something that goes beyond luxury. Are you saying that rising tensions haven't affected business between China and the West at all? Yes, I think that's right. So in the grand scheme of things, even when we've seen difficulties with US businesses, for example, operating in China, for Western businesses operating in China, and of course for Chinese companies like Huawei trying to operate in the West, even where we've seen that, it seemingly hasn't affected Western investors' perception of these companies' futures, their prospects, all that much. Whatever happens to diplomatic relations, I think most people believe that rich Chinese consumers are unlikely to stop buying handbags in Paris as long as they can get there. You look at mining companies like BHP Group and Rio Tinto, there's been some difficulties there. Geopolitical disputes like the the Chinese government blocking some purchases of Australian commodities. But basically, these companies are doing actually quite well. Okay, but what about America? America's been locked in a trade war with China for years, and Washington's increasingly cracking down on Chinese technology. So I think this is where it gets most interesting. If you look at the three biggest companies in that index I mentioned earlier, Western companies with a huge amount of Chinese exposure, the companies are Qualcomm, Texas Instruments, and Broadcom. These are all three American semiconductor companies. They make between one-third and two-thirds of their revenue in China. So this is absolutely enormous exposure. If that was to drop, that would be a huge business impact. If that was to disappear at something that's a third to two-thirds of your revenue, you're talking about a potentially sort of fatal event to a business model. These companies are operating precisely where the worst disputes over advanced technology are between the US and China. Their stock prices have seen double-digit percentage increases this year. More broadly, US-China trade hit a record level last year. So while you can see in every sort of political and general news headline all this tension between the US and China, 
it's really, really difficult, even with the most exposed companies, to see it coming through and really affecting financial markets. Could this change if things escalate? Yeah, definitely. And I think what's being displayed in what's happening in markets at the moment is basically a lack of belief that these things will escalate. But it certainly could. Last month, even, you saw Texas Instruments double down on a commitment to invest more in China. Qualcomm, another one of those US semiconductor companies, has partnerships with China Mobile, which is a big Chinese telecommunications company, a range of Chinese phone manufacturers. So basically, these companies aren't acting as if this is something they're going to have to move on very quickly. It's not as if they're behaving like they're going to have to massively cut down their exposure to an investment in China. They're still pretty much full steam ahead. So in sum, politically, China and America's relationship is as tense as ever. But then business-wise, it's the opposite. Mike, do you think these two approaches can coexist? Uh, Basically, no. Um, One of these views has to be wrong pretty much by definition. This sort of surprisingly strong performance of Western firms really heavily exposed to China suggests two things to me. First is that even with the threat of conflict, foreign companies of Chinese exposure are still clearly a much better way of sort of trying to benefit from massive Chinese economic growth that's been over the last decades or whether we're talking about what's to come than the domestic Chinese stock market has been, which has had sort of terrible returns for decades and decades. It's got loads and loads of state-owned firms, uh, heavily indebted property developers. It's been a really rubbish way of betting on China. The second thing that this suggests is that there's this massive gap between foreign policy and security sort of people, uh, the, the hawks in this, people who are really worried about the US-China relationship or or really concerned about China's foreign policy, for example, and global investors who are essentially betting that the business relationships between the two countries won't break down much more than they have already. They're clearly the sort of peace lovers in this scenario. Investors really don't seem to believe or want to believe that businesses with massive exposure to China and the West will face serious problems because of it. So basically, yes, only one of these two views can be correct. It's either the increasingly bleak view of diplomats or investors' somewhat more optimistic view. Uh, One of these basically has to be wrong. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, thank you very much. In England's Premier League, bookmakers reckon the top team this year will be Manchester City, the richest club in Europe, led by superstar striker Erling Haaland. He would not rest until he'd got his goal. 49 this season. Manchester City 4, Arsenal 1. The wealthiest team in France, Paris Saint-Germain, are comfortably top of their league. And Barcelona, the second richest team in Spain, have a healthy lead in theirs. But in Italy, a minor miracle awaits, proving that sometimes football greatness isn't just about the money. Serie A, the Italian football championship, is set to be won this year by Napoli, who are the sixth richest club in the league, which is a club that has been in the doldrums for decades following the glory days of Diego Maradona. Mike Jacobin writes about sport for The Economist. 
they do not have the financial clout of many of their rivals. But with only eight games to play, they have a commanding lead and it's almost inconceivable now they don't go on to win the championship, which would be a major upset from what we expected at the start of the season. So what's behind the turnaround then? I think this is a combination of several factors all falling into place at exactly the right time. For any football club to be successful, even if you have the most amount of money in the world, you need to play the transfer market well. You need to have a squad that's well balanced across age profiles and depth. And Napoli did a series of moves last summer, all of which have come off. They managed to get rid of several long-staying players who were good, but were getting older. They were over 30. They were on big wages. And they've brought in three or four very capable squad players. But they've also brought in a guy called Kavica Kvaratskhelia, who is a young Georgian forward, who is not really on the radar of many other clubs. And Kvaratskhelia, he has absolutely lit up Serie A this year. Ederson fermato da questo rimpallo, Osimen si accende dall'altra parte, Kvaraskelia che riceve, Kvaraskelia uno contro uno, va sul destro, sterza, risterza e calcia sotto la traversa. Inevitably, he's been called Kvaradona. He's a wonderful player to watch because he's very fast, he's got a bag full of tricks, and he's also brought the best out of Napoli's other leading player, who's a striker called Victor Osman from Nigeria, who was good and is now excellent. The two of them have been thrilling and have really kind of propelled Napoli from being a decent club into a potentially championship winning one. You said there were several factors here, more than just the, the people on the pitch. What else is behind all this? Yes, yeah, so this is also a happy coincidence of coaching as well. Like several Italian clubs, Napoli tend to go through their coaches quite quickly and they seem to have landed on Luciano Spalletti, who's a veteran Italian coach who's been in charge of lots of different clubs. And Spalletti's skills seem to fit what Napoli needed particularly well. He was in charge last year when they had an older and slightly less mobile squad. Having made the changes they've made and brought in Kravatskalia and a couple of others, they're now playing much more attacking, more high-energy football, and Spalletti's kind of let them go with it and I think has been rewarded with their success on the pitch. But I also think there is another factor here, and that is luck. And how has luck figured in? Well, Serie A has probably not been its most competitive this season. The giant of Italian football that have habitually been hoovering up titles. Juventus had a woeful start to the season, and then that was compounded by being implicated in an accounting scandal. They are nowhere in this race this year. The champions last year, AC Milan, are a talented team, but they've also got a thin squad and have had lots of injuries. Inter Milan, their city rivals, have had a very inconsistent year and have been incapable of putting together a kind of run of games to really tilt at the title. It's a bit harsh on Napoli to say they've had a free run at it. That's not quite true. But things have fallen into place that have enabled this to happen for a very exciting team to come through and potentially win this championship this year. It would have been more difficult in other years, I think. So this is a combination of the different things that have all come together to enable this title tilt to take place. And taking all that together, what does it tell you about the sport more generally if a team like Napoli that doesn't have a whole lot of money can be on this rocket rise? Well, primarily, this is a win for the Romantics because this is a lovely club with a very close-knit culture and a great history. And this is the kind of thing that football fans kind of love to see. In terms of what it means beyond that, I mean, occasionally these things do happen. Other clubs to have won championships this century without the kind of financial clout of their rivals would be Leicester City in the Premier League, Montpellier in France, Wolfsburg in Germany, Deportivo La Coruña in Spain. 
They've all won titles, but none of them have been able to go and win another one. They've all been one-hit wonders, if you like. So that's the challenge for Napoli, is to make sure that this excellence is sustained. They'll have to do that whilst also deciding whether or not to cash in on Kvatskalia and Ozerman, both of whom are going to attract some enormous bids from other clubs in the summer. So that's the decision for the club, is whether or not to take the money and risk never repeating this feat with this team, or whether or not they think they can sustain this and they want to hold on to the players and try and build more of a legacy. So it's a nice story, but broadly, money still does make the sport go round. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that no league has got this balance exactly right. So in Germany, you've got clubs that are very soundly run and have fan representation on the board. But on the other hand, the league is utterly dominated by Bayern Munich, who've won the Bundesliga for each of the last 10 years. Italy, by contrast, if Napoli win it, they'd be the fourth different champion in four years, which suggests a very competitive league. But at the same time, the clubs also suffered some huge losses during the pandemic. And the league's had at least two major corruption scandals that we know of in the last 20 years. Then there's the English Premier League, which is by far the richest of all. But there are problems with competitive balance too, because Manchester City, which are by far the richest club, are on their way to winning what would be their fifth championship in six years, and perhaps heading for Bayern Munich-like dominance. So it's quite clear that money talks very loudly in football. And if, as I expect, Napoli win it this weekend, then this, to me, is a win for the romantics, for football. And it shows that if you have the right players and the right management, which are incredibly difficult to get together if you're not a rich club in the first place, then you can pull off something that really upsets the financial odds and makes sport the joyous thing that it so often is. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Western and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kainers, Barkley Bram, and Sarah Larniak, with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.